kick it off, Gary? Sure, sounds great. So welcome everybody to, this will be our final Meet the Author for year 2022, won't it? Yeah. We got a good turnout too. So thank you everybody for taking the time of your day to come and join this community discussion. So I'm just gonna throw it right over to you, Gary, like I like to do. Um, and who do we have today and what are we doing? Well, I'm really pleased today to welcome David Poven to the show. Hello, David. Ah, good, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Yes, yeah, yeah, good evening or early evening for, um, for David because it's um, 3 a.m. in the morning in Melbourne time. So thank you for either going to bed early and getting up, going to bed early and I guess getting up later or whatever. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. What I'm going to be talking about with David and with you also, others, um, is David's book, A Field Guide to Safety Professional Practice. Now, last month, if you recall, if you were on the show, we discussed the state of the AHS profession with Chance Roberts and his beginner's guide. One of the topics that did come up was education. Education was a major component and noticed that programs reference books written in the late 90s and early 2000s. As a result, education and the latest concepts like safety two, safety differently, hop, or even a grounding in safety science are glaringly missing. Well, if there is a book that ought to be included in a list of references, I definitely would vote for the one that we're gonna talk about today. This is a chef's book, not a book for recipe followers. It's a book that makes you think and not blindly follow. So David, let me get right into it. Let me ask you, what made you decide to write this book? Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thanks, um, thanks everyone for coming along. So I guess, um, I mean, I, I've been a safety professional for my entire career. I'm, I did, uh, I studied it straight out of school and and then straight out of college or university. I went, uh, got my first safety job at 19, and and it's the only work I've ever done. And I started working closely with Sydney Decker in about 12 years ago, um, and then I became really curious about what the role of a safety professional could most effectively be inside an organization. And that then led on to doing a PhD with, with Sydney and, and Dr. Drew Ray and looking at, you know, the title of my PhD research was what is the role of a safety professional? And um, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, I'm, I, I live in Melbourne in Australia and um, infamously one of the longest lockdowns in the world during COVID. So in 2020, I didn't have a whole lot to do um, which finally gave me the opportunity to sit down and 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 write this book, which had long been a project of mine that uh, that had never quite got off the ground. Cool, that's cool. All right. Well, the book itself um, it's divided into five parts or building blocks for an effective safety professional practice. You begin though with a chapter on safety science and theories. Why is this important? Look, I think. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pop psychology uh, in in the in the safety space, and and a lot of different ideas that are that are floating around the mix. And then there's this sort of um, growing empirical basis around safety um, in the safety science literature. And what I thought was really important for safety professionals is to understand the context of their role. I think in business we we say sometimes that. Um, um, cash is king. So speak to your CFO and, and they'll sort of say cash is king. And I think in safety or any operational aspect of an organization, um, context is king. And so what, what I wanted to do and, and start off this book is, is just with a, a sort of a grounding in the last hundred years of management science and, and safety science, because often in organizations, people will talk about Taylorism or behavioral safety or Heinrich or all of these 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 ideas in safety without necessarily understanding what what questions those those theories were answering and also how might some of those ideas still be relevant to the questions that business faces today so um, that was why I thought that a, a solid grounding in safety science would be a a good place to start all right okay well you end you end the chapter with three cooking tips. 
Yeah, well, I, I tried to do this. I really wanted to make the book as practical as it could be. Um, I was sort of inspired, um, this original book, so studying with Sydney, the original field guide to understanding human error investigations really helped in the early 2000s. It really helped take, um, I guess, some of the, the early resilience engineering concepts uh, into more practical application, particularly in that context for people investigating, you know, major accidents. And, and I wanted this book to do the same thing. I wanted uh, a safety professional to be able to pick it up and go, here's some ideas and concepts. And hey, in every chapter, here are some things that are going to help you do this in your organization. Here's some things that are going to uh, get in your way. And, you know, here's sort of three, three tips at the end. So when we get to the end of, for example, um, the safety science section, I sort of say that, um, there's, there's a lot of contradictions in safety science. You know, we need to comply or we need to um, empower people with the trusted autonomy to make decisions for their role. So there's contradictions everywhere in safety science. Um, also sort of talked about the role of a practitioner to make these theories complementary rather than contradictory. So you actually need to figure out what the best uh, combination of these approaches are for your organization. And the third tip is sort of, you actually need to understand where your stakeholders are coming from. You know, what's the mindset and beliefs around safety and operations that your stakeholders have? Because, um, you know, I think organizations move forward when there's an aligned operating philosophy in the business. So that's an example where we just sort of come to the end of the, the section and go, here's, you know, if you take nothing away from this section, take these, these three points away. Right. You mentioned about, um, or often we hear about this so-called single unifying theory of safety. Is there such a thing? No, um, no, I, I don't think so. Um, maybe for a little while in 2018, 19, when we were writing, um, when Drew Ray and I were writing our paper on safety work versus the safety of work, we, we thought we were starting to round out around not, not a unifying theory, but a very broad theory of, of safety management in organizations, um, but didn't, couldn't even get close. You know, safety is, I mean, if we think of safety as an emergent property of work and work is such a complex undertaking, I, I think you've got to look at safety as a transdisciplinary science. You've got to think about psychology and management science and institutional theory and, um, and anthropology and, and engineering. And, you know, it, it, there's just no, no way of tying it together, I think, in a, um, in a single way. Right. I think this is why the theme of the um, this, this conversation is about cooking and not looking for one recipe that works for all. You don't know what ingredients you're going to get when you when you go into an organization. And some cases you got to use the ingredients that the that's offered or available and then make yeah. substitutes for that. OK, right. Well, let's let's move on to the five building blocks in the book, which you lay out. And I see that they're in a very deliberate order. Um, the five building blocks are, one is creating influence. Number two is managing risk. Three is managing work. Four is leading change. And the fifth and last is facilitating learning. So out of curiosity, how did you arrive at choosing these topics? And were these obvious no-brainers for you or did they emerge slowly over time? No, they did emerge, Gary. When I when I started, I mean, this book started in a in a training course, which we run at at Safety Futures, and so the book was sort of like a after the training course had been put together. And when I started with that program, the original starting point was this: the Inspo Global Capability Framework. And I sort of said, wouldn't it be great if we had a training course that was delivering everything in this in this framework? And then I started to pull it apart and realized that the framework was actually missing a whole bunch of really important uh, things. So. Um, I then sort of rounded it out, but the basic building blocks for me go like this. As a safety professional, you don't make the decisions that have the most impact on safety in the business. You influence the decisions and actions of others. So, you know, there's not much point in going any further until people in the organization will actually listen to you. And that's all about relationships and influence and trust and credibility. So, you know, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, Mary Angelou quote. So we have to start with understanding what does it take in an organization to genuinely have, have influence um, over others. And then I guess once people will listen to you in your business, you may as well have them listen to you about the things that can seriously injure or kill people. 
So that's this managing risk piece. And what does end-to-end operational risk management actually really look like? And what's the role of the safety professional in being both coach and conscience of the organization's risk management uh, process? And then once we, once we, I guess, have got a handle on the really big issues in business, we need to understand how to manage work. Uh, and then we need to talk about management systems and, and prescribing work and, and dealing with safety clutter and, and all of these repeatable business processes and practices in our organization. Because at the end of the day, organizations need reliable and dependable role and task performance. So there's always going to be an aspect of prescribing business processes and, and, um, and task procedures. Um, we then um, move on from there and go, once we've got those, those building blocks in the business, we need to lead change because organizations don't want to stand still. Um, I don't, I've never met a safety professional who says to me that my organization is perfectly happy with uh, where we are in safety. We have no desire to get any better. In fact, you know, turn up at 10 o'clock, leave it to have a long lunch, really just don't do, you know, we don't need any safety improvement. Um, most businesses that we work with are in a sort of a constant state of safety transformation. So the ability to lead and manage change becomes incredibly important, whether it's implementing an action from an incident investigation or whether it's actually um, leading the rollout of a global safety program. And then the fifth point there is, is facilitating learning, which is the day in day out role of safety professionals to make tomorrow just a little bit better than today and next week a little bit better than this week. So whether it's learning teams or incident investigation or monthly KPIs and, and performance measurement, you know, what are these processes and practices that safety professionals have to, to enable their organizations to learn? So that's how I sort of put this. And, and as much as I don't like sort of these linear approaches to safety, this is how I thought influence people, get a handle on the big important things that can kill people, put in place useful, reliable um, business processes and practices, know how to drive um, material improvement and enable your business to learn from what it does every day. Great, okay. So the, the training course that you provide, um, just curious, for the um, students that do attend, do you find it um, surprising, not surprising, that uh, when you do talk about creating influence, that's the first time they've heard about it? They never got that during their formal education? Yeah, look, most people um, don't think too much about it in their in their roles. Um, once we start talking about building relationships and and how relationships form amongst humans and and how this applies in the context context of institutions, and we talk about Edgar Schein's work in humble inquiry and why asking questions is more useful for relationship building and 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 understanding in an organisation than um, providing advice and going around the organisation saying things that you already know. Um, and we talk about coaching and you know, how to hold, you know, constructive, uh, difficult conversations and, and provide professional opinions that are different to others. So we talk about all these different, you know, communication skills and, and people just haven't, haven't thought too much about it. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of times in their role, um, often there's a few different, uh, reflections people have. One is, oh yeah, I've, I've figured this out over 15 or 20 years and, and, and I understand this and others are like, you know, I've never really thought too much about this at all. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I, as you previously mentioned, each chapter ends with useful tips. Uh, just to give viewers a glimpse of what you got in the book, what are, maybe give us three or four tips you'd like to highlight to create influence. You got any other ones? You gave us a few. Can you give us a few more? Yeah, look, um, we, I guess, I guess one of the tips is that you know socially constructed power is more important than any amount of formal authority. We'll say that in the building relationship section. So, you know, a lot of times safety people that are that are struggling with influence in their organisation will say, "Well, if I just reported directly to the CEO, then everything would be fine." It's mm -hmm. like no, no amount of formal authority is going to really support you to, you know, essentially get anything done in a business. It's 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 you've you've got to actually build socially constructed power. Um, which is based more on how you approach your role and how you interact with other people in the business. Um, I guess um, one of the things around coaching is it's not always right to be right. So, you know, when we're actually working with other people in, in, in the business, um, it, it, it should never be about us being right. It should be about actually supporting and, and helping other people to, to develop and grow and, 
and find their own their own way forward. So, you know, it might be more right in a particular context for us to let go of the need to the need to be right. Um, and I guess the the last one around our difficult conversation is that having constructive difficult conversation is a key part of our role that we should be having frequently. And we draw here on a William Wrigley Jr. quote um, from the late 1920s, where he said in his manufacturing organization at the time that um, if two people in my same organization always agree, then one of them is unnecessary. And so I really insist with safety professionals that you're there, you're a professional, you're there to have a professional opinion. You're actually there to constructively challenge your organization in a way that strengthens your relationships and move the, moves the organization forward, not just being as Dave Woods would describe you know, the cold water and the empty gun by just um, basically just saying no to a whole bunch of stuff that the organization wants to do. Right. Your next building block is managing risk. You begin with a shift in risk perception where you see maybe um, risk as being defined as a chance or probability, but then you talk about a shift in ISO 31000. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure, um, Gary, but Tamari, you've got your hand up. Is there a question that you want to throw in now? Well, I, I don't want to kind of go off of um, what Gary has for a tr speaking track, but I did want to have an opportunity to also drill in to what you were talking about, the, the need not to always be right, Right, um, because I think that is a stopper in group dynamics for sure. When somebody starts getting an idea, even though in 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 a professional perspective they may not be hitting it at a hundred percent, but if they're hitting it at least ten percent, kind of how can you bring people along for the journey? You know. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. Um, I guess this idea of it. it it not always being right to be right. And, and, and there's not necessarily, there's, there's, there's rarely likely to be one right and, and one truth. You know, I think in the, in the fog and the haze of operations and safety, um, you've just got to sort of just work in a general direction is, would be my view and, and, and make sure that as much as you can, you bring everyone along, along with you. So, you know, I think it's as, at any point in time when the safety person thinks they're right, there's other people in the organization who also think they're right. And just sort of like duking it out is not necessarily a useful way to, um, to, to strengthen your relationship and build alignment. So I sort of, you know, when, when I, I, one of the sayings I say to people um, a lot in safety is, you know, you have a mindset of replacing extreme judgment with extreme curiosity. So when you get to the point and go, you know, I can't believe you think like that. Um, replace that that model in your mind with, wow, gee, that's not how I think about this issue. You know, <laughs> you must have a completely different lens over this business than me. Um, I really want to understand, you know, why you think like that um, because it's going to help me see something that I'm missing. Um, so I think, Tamara, that's sort of how I, how I think about that. Extreme curiosity when when anyone thinks differently to you. Oh, it looks like it's you had a, a question there. Oh, I was just going to also say it also opens up opportunity for us to be now seeing the world through different lenses. Absolutely. And we know in complex um, complexity science that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the limitations of an individual perspective is exactly that. We've only got a single lens into, into the system from, from where we're standing and, and where we're looking and, and other people see, see the same system quite quite differently from where they're standing and, and how they're looking. Um, yeah, I see that um, Philip is asking and it goes back to creating influence. Can a safety professional change anything without having a transformational management team? Well, I think absolutely. I, I, I think, I mean, never underestimate the power of, of, of individuals and in small groups. I mean, there's, a, there's another cool saying that, um, you know, if you think that a small a small group of people can't change anything. In fact, throughout human history, it's the only thing that ever has. You know, I, I think you, you think about, um, you know, individuals and small groups that have decided to um, to push in a different direction. And I think as safety professionals, you know, often to me, safety professionals will say, look, 
you know, I'm really frustrated in my business. I need the business to change to make my job easier. And I say, you know, business is never going to roll out the red carpet and worry about how their safety professional team is is feeling and feeling supported. The, the safety professional team has to take ownership for, you know, changing their own course within an organization and through changing their own course, changing the course of the business. And it's this idea of, of, of moving one conversation at a time. So I totally believe that a safety professional through just the things that they do and the way that they talk about safety can change an organization's safety narrative and can, um, can have the business thinking in a, in a different way about safety. You know, it may not be fast, but, but it will change if, if, um, if the safety organization changes what it's doing. I see Phil has unmiked. Did he want to add something? No, I, I, thanks, David. Um, no, I think the last, your last comment was the bit that really is, it's not something you can expect overnight and it may take several years to actually change for the, for the organization to change. That may, may in fact eventually be subject to a, a leadership change because if your safety is, is not working, then it's a, an indication that everything's not, or many things are not working. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna move on now to the next building block, managing risk. Yep. And as I as I kind of mentioned, there there's a shift in risk perception, and what we've shifted now to an ISO thirty one thousand. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, briefly. I I guess um you know for a long time we thought of risk as you know like you said there a chance of a probability of a loss. And this comes a lot out of the insurance industry and actuarials and, and thinking about, you know, what's the likelihood of this going going wrong and how much are we going to have to pay? And then in, I think, 2009, ISO 31000 said, no, 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 risk should be more about the effect of uncertainty on our business objectives. And so then we need to think more about uncertainty and, and as opposed to absolute risk. Um, you know, what are the things that we don't know about in our organisation or, or maybe we don't know well enough to be confident of the way we're controlling them. And in, in, in a number of operations, um, utilities is a good one where, you know, in Australia, for example, um, high voltage live line work, which is working at like 110,000 volts or something. Um, I don't, there hasn't been a fatality in, in high voltage work um, in over a decade, but there's multiple fatalities every year in, in, in low voltage work. Um, so the question around risk maybe isn't about absolute risk. Uh, maybe, you know, it's about um, other factors um, that, that, that contribute there. So, you know, what we do in this, in this, these chapters of the book is do a real end-to-end -end operational risk management process, which people uh, on this call might understand more if you're in the process industries like, you know, process safety management or risk engineering. We actually step right through um, you know, some detailed, some fairly detailed risk management concepts and applications um, because we also find that safety professionals generally have a very um, superficial understanding of, of, of risk management. You know, everyone can plot a risk on a, on a risk matrix with likelihood and consequence, but that's, that's about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so if we talk about risk management process, should more about hazard control and risk assessment, what should a safety professional be concentrating on? Um, so I guess it's about, you know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, in risk about the role of um, coaching and, and being a coach and a conscience for the risk management process. So, so we sort of talk the end-to-end -end process as being understand the work, understand the hazards associated with the work, understand what can cause those hazards to lead to, you know, the risk consequences, understand what controls you've got that line up with each, with each of those causes. So, you know, whether you think about a bow tie model or something, understand the defeating factors of those particular controls. So what can cause those controls to fail? And then what activities and checks you need to perform to make sure that those controls will be functional, available and reliable. Um, and so that's sort of gets us from a, a, risk identification understanding kind of level all the way through to what do I need to do in my organization day in day out to ensure the the quality and and reliability and availability of my controls yeah um, I, I can see there's a shift where risk management seems to be more of a people process 
much more than a technical process. Yeah, and look, this is this is a bit. I, I mean, I'm sure on the call here, this is a bit controversial. I, I made a, a quote in a paper that I wrote in 2017 that um, safety is not a standard to be achieved. It's a point of consensus amongst stakeholders. And this idea we've had in safety that there's a there's a compliance there's there's this there's this black line compliance threshold that once we cross this compliance threshold where we're all, all of a sudden safe and 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 everything we do in safety is about meeting a standard and you know my um, my thoughts around the the complexity of safety is we shouldn't see it as a standard to be achieved we should actually see it as this um, point of consensus amongst a diverse group of interested parties so if we get to the point that we're sometimes we tell workers that no 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 we're compliant so it's safe even if our workforce thinks something's unsafe or um i actually think this should be more about if you take the technical specialist the safety person the frontline workforce the management um if any one of those parties thinks that there's more to do then there's more to do um at, at least more to discuss um regardless of whether we we think we're we're compliant or not compliant mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so now we're comfortable. I can see the connection now. We're comfortable influencing people. We have a solid handle on the risk control environment. So what's next? Building block three, managing work? Yeah, so managing work. And, and organizations, I guess, always want to um, standardize, proceduralize, um, and, and have some confidence that the work is going to be executed in the way that the organization plans for that work to be executed. And and this is really important because, um, you know, if you if you don't understand how work's being carried out, then it's very hard to manage it. It's very hard to resource it. It's very hard to provide the equipment and the training and the support um, and the interdependencies um, in the organisation. So, so we want to have process procedural control over over work. Now that you know, today in twenty twenty two, sometimes in safety is seen to be a very um, and a naughty concept, you know, this idea of procedural control over work, but it's a, it's a, it's a reality. It's a necessity. So we actually talk to, um, to, to, I guess, I, I guess this book talks to how to do that in a constructive way in organizations, you know, what is the level of control, how we think about, you know, some of um, Andrew Howell's work around, you know, um, rules and, and, and actions and states and, and, and how that comes together. Um, and then some of some social science theory around the balance balancing sort of compliance and, and autonomy. Um, and then some recently I saw um, Jim Moranis on, on the call, I think came in earlier and, and we talk about critical steps as well about how to, um, how to understand the really important things where, you know, the, the blue line and the black line needs to be the, at the same point in a particular task. Um, yeah. So yeah, and, and and then I think that's helped helps liberate people who have been in this tension of, um, there's this school of thought that says burn the house down when it comes to procedures and, and management systems in the business, um, which is both not smart and 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 not not a helpful way to think about managing safety. Yeah, so I think most of the viewers on here probably know that, but just in case we have some don't, the black line is what we call work as imagined. And the blue line is what we call work is done. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and and, and I mean, I, I mean, I think the 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 most popular conceptualization of of work as imagined work is done is this is this black line blue line model where you've got a fixed um, black line, which is the way that work procedures and 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 management and maybe the safety team prescribe and conceptualize the way that work happens, and then you've got this um, this blue line, which is a very dynamic. Um, adaptive, um, context-dependent uh, reality of work. Um, mm -hmm. And at times that blue line and black line might be the same and more often than not, there's there's likely to be a deviation. Now, what all, what safety people have to understand is, is that is that deviation of, of work as done just um, uh, normal and okay performance variability of the work? Um, mm -hmm. is it, is it innovation and improvement or is it sort of this, um, this drift into failure, um, or this, or this drift of, of, of work over time. And, and this is, I guess, the role of a safety team to understand that, that gap between workers, imagine work has done and what it means for risk and safety in the organization. Yeah. Right. 
I do like a chapter that you've got in under managing work because there is this tendency that if if rules are good, more rules are gooder. And of course, huh. we start to overwhelm people with too many. So this topic on safety clutter, I thought was very, very apropos. And I know um, you in concert with Jude Ray have produced a lot of video lectures, articles, and provide us resources on the topic. Can you explain what is safety clutter? Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, look, I, I think this follows uh, an, an idea that, you know, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And I think that's true of, of, of safety and, and work and work procedures. So, you know, safety clutter, we, we defined as um, the accumulation and persistence of safety roles, practices, activities uh, in an organization that doesn't add any value to operational safety. So I guess we've got a largely North American audience. Um, a term I learned during COVID, which I love, is pencil whipping. So in, in this part of the world, we call it box ticking, but, um, but I much prefer, prefer your term. You know, it, it's, it's these things that we do in, in an organization with the primary objective of enhancing, improving safety. Um, and one that, you know, maybe we know and others know in the business isn't actually adding any, any, any useful value to, to operational risk. So, you know, we, 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 we've talked about it for, for a couple of years now since we, coined that term and, and, and published it in, in 2019, 2018, 2018. Um, and organizations say, yes, we've got it. And still we find organizations struggle for a whole bunch of reasons to do, to do much about it. Um, so that's what we talk about in this chapter. We're trying to help people understand that it's there and that our role as safety professional needs to be, I mean, ideally needs to be sit back and go, what are all the safety processes and practices we've got in our business from inductions to inspections, to investigations, to audits, um, you know, to training programs, what are all these things that we've got for safety in our business? And what is the current kind of um, fidelity and, and quality of those activities in the business? And, and, and where we discover that, that one of those processes or practices is not delivering on its intent, then, you know, we should act. We should, we need to act. You know, we, we need to do something about it. You know, the number of safety professionals and safety teams I sit with that go, Oh yeah. Our, you know, this is, this is admin. This is, this is broken. And, and I'm like, well, like it, it, it's your process, your practice. You should be consider yourself the process owner of it. And if that's how you feel, like do, do something quickly with it. Yeah. I did characterize your book as a, as a chef's book because you got to first think about the ingredients you're going to add together and the potential outcome of mixing them together. But you do have recipes in the book, and I think they're very useful. For example, can you just talk about the three C's of safety color and when this recipe might be used? Yeah, well, we, we, we sort of, um, in the original paper on safety clutter, we wanted to help people sort of, um, you know, both conceptualize it, but also practically try to identify and do something about clutter in their business. So, we talked about with every safety practice in the business, there's these three C's, contribution, confidence, consensus. So, you know, we need to think about each safety process and practice in our business. Uh, you know, what is the contribution that this has to, to safety? So whether it's an induction process, a risk assessment process, uh, whatever it is, a, a leadership visit, uh, whatever that is, um, an audit, what is the potential contribution of this activity to safety? How does this actually work? If, if, this, if this process or practice around safety is, is delivering on its intent, how does that actually happen? Um, so, you know, and this isn't, this isn't you know, rocket science or, or complicated. It's like I, if I'm doing a safety induction, what I'm actually trying to do is induct someone into my workplace. I'm trying to make them understand the hazards and risks of this workplace, the control environment, you know, a whole bunch of things. So then there's like, then the second one is confidence. So, you know, to what degree of confidence do we have that that process or practice is delivering on that contribution? You know, how do we know? Do we just believe that that happens? You know, we run inductions and, and, and it works. Do we have any data or feedback or, or insight that, that we're actually, you know, realizing that, that, that contribution of that process? And then there's a consensus. What does everyone think? So, you know, the manager, the worker, the safety person, the senior leader, you know, and particularly when we think about, you know, audits as an example, you know, is everyone on the same page? So management might think that, Audits are great. We we get a whole lot of confidence and, and understanding. And you know, your, your frontline leaders might think audits are a complete waste of time. I never learn anything new about my business during an audit. Um, um, and the safety team might think that, oh, gee, you know, 
for the sake of four weeks we spend in this audit, we really don't contribute a whole lot. So what we wanted to do with this 3C framework is provide people some language and, and, and process to start talking about the relative efficacy of the different safety practices they've got. Yeah, Tanya, you've got a good question about can you prevent consensus from being groupthink? Do you want to open your mic and talk about that? Well, I mean, I, I've, I just asked the question because I know that um, a lot of uh, organizations like the idea of consensus building and we're all, we're all here together, but that the influence, I mean, I, I know that David knows this stuff, like if the leader weighs in first, then uh, consensus isn't going to be obtained because everybody is going to be socially normed into, eh, well, if that's the way I should be thinking, then that's you know, I will just agree with them, even though it's not their genuine opinion. And I'm just, it's tricky. So I'm just wondering if, uh, if you could comment on that. Yeah, thanks, um, Tanya. Nice to see you again. Um, I, th I think, I think with that, you're absolutely right. So, so we, 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 we talk a lot currently, which is great around psychological safety and, and, you know, what that means, whether people are actually saying what they, what they really think. Um, I think in this in this point around safety clutter, we talked about the people who are, are the owners of the business pro of the process, the people who are executing the the process and practice, and the people who are supposedly being made safe by the process and practice, and and these different stakeholder groups. And I think that comes down to the the skill and ability of a of a safety professional to be able to seek out, you know, insights um, and opinions of people, whether that's in a in a group conversation, but but maybe in an individual. Um, interaction so being being mindful knowledgeable about group think bias um and and these other things um the role of power i really like charles perot's um quote that you know power is an power is an issue in safety more important than culture and i think in institutions power is very much something that is is not discussed enough in in safety science or, or management science um, which goes to your point, Tanya, about um, groupthink and um, and just parroting what the manager says. So I, I think that's where the where the where the skill of the safety professional, the knowledge and skill of the safety professional in getting to the genuine ideas and opinions of people throughout the business. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, in your fourth building block, you say it's time to go strategic in terms of leading change. So what do you mean by that? Well, this is this idea. I, I guess, Gary, this is this, um, as safety professionals, where I, I think at the core of our role, we're change leaders, um, change facilitators, change managers, pretty much everything we do in our role has an element of change associated with it. You know, whether we're trying to um, sort of sort of shape the, the, the mindset and beliefs of others through through conversation, like I said earlier, whether we're trying to implement actions out of an incident investigation or an audit, whether we're trying to lead a safety improvement program and or put in place a new process or or practice in the business, uh, a significant amount of everything we do as safety professionals is about is about change. Um, and I guess this is another core capability that you know if you look at a normal safety professional development program or or curriculum, you might not see you know too much about change change management or or change leadership. So. What we do in this part of the book is really help people understand change, you know, top down, top down change, um, you know, how, you know, management consultants, you know, approach this, Michael Porter's, you know, eight step change process and, 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 and what this looks like as, as top down change. What we know about, um, I guess, more, more bottom up change, starting with um, Kurt Lewin's work in the 1940s with the Harwood um, experiments and, and, and how we, we, we think about some modern approaches to change through behavioral economics, like nudge theory and, and things like that, you know, but, but central, the central theme to, to this section of the book is really that um, organizations don't change people do. Um, and in organizations change needs to be done with people, not to people, you know, if we want genuine, you know, um, ownership and, and, and alignment and, um, and movement, then um, it needs to be done with people, not to people. Yeah. I think it's great how you treat strategic or organization-wide change, such as implementing a global transformation from an ecological perspective, because this really aligns with what Karsten, Karsten Bush said about two shows ago about organizations being complex adaptive systems. 
And how he believes, and I think you already mentioned it, that culture sometimes emerges from the system and evolves towards this uncertain future. And you'd mentioned nudge theory as well. So I think not too many people maybe understand what nudge theory is. So can you give us a bit of an introduction to that? Yeah, I guess I guess I know Gary. You know a lot more about this than than I do. Um, one of the things about trying to write a, a very general book is you you probe into areas and then you realize that these are whole fields and disciplines, and you very quickly feel very inadequate about your understanding of of these areas. But I guess I guess nudge theory. Um, I guess it's for me about how do you shape the the conditions in an organization such that you are the conditions such that you are shaping the decisions and actions of others. You know, to align with the 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 way that you would you would hope that people would make decisions and and, and act you know and, and if you think about you know a local government or a city um, or a, um, I think you, you'd call them the the um, city departments in in the Americas you know there's 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 often nudge departments where they're looking at how do I design the the community spaces in my in my city such that people want to come out and spend time in them how do I need to think about the shape and and um, and, and things like that or so so it's this idea in, in nudge theory and, and I think it's important in safety and in organizational life generally is you know how do we how do we shape the conditions in the organization in a way that provides nudges to people to decide and act in ways that we would we would like them to decide and act now some people might say you know that's a whole lot of manipulation um, and I'd say well yeah like um, marketing <laughs> is is a whole bunch of manipulation like there's a trillion dollar marketing industry that's trying to get us to buy things that we don't know we need um until we see the advertisement or or that and um i think you know organizations should be authentic and genuine and at the same time i don't think there's anything wrong with organizations going rather than telling people what we want them to do how can we shape the environment and the conditions in the organization that uh that make it easy and sensible for them to decide and act in a certain way yeah 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 we look at different degrees of nudging because sometimes nudging turns into you're going to yank somebody over there or you're gonna have to pull somebody over there or sometimes you have to smack somebody over there well we're not talking about that form of influence here we're talking about real nudging where people actually do have a choice to say yay or nay Right. And then it's up to us, I think, is create the conditions to make it easy for them to go there and make it attractive as well. Okay, great. Um, any other thoughts from, from the folks up there? Any um, questions, ideas? Okay. Jeremy, you've got a question. You want to come on mic and talk about that? Yeah, I guess, David, my question is, uh, <clears throat> how do you differentiate, you know, safety-related change efforts versus all the other change things that go on in our organizations, right? And there could be a thousand of those things going on at, at one time. How would you how would you differentiate what we do versus those other ones? Yeah, Jeremy, it's a good question. And in some ways, I'd say that they're not different um, from any other change effort in an organization. And then in you know, at the same time, I'd say maybe maybe they are a little bit, um, and 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 why I think they might be a little bit different is because we're actually shaping work, um, you know, deep in the operation of of the business, and many other change efforts don't really need to penetrate their organisation that far. You know, if you're implementing, you know, something to do with finance, it might just affect, you know, some of the finance team, or um, you know, it might just be a sort of a, a um, you know, more of a compartmentalized change type of um, process or activity. Whereas when we're thinking about a lot of the things we do in safety, we're actually trying to make change sort of in all pockets of our business with all people in our business, which makes it a much um, more extensive undertaking and a much, much more operational undertaking as well. So I think, um, I think just thinking about it now, I, I think a lot more thought needs to go into our safety uh related change efforts than we might currently be putting be putting into them um thank you appreciate it no that's fine okay. um, i think um just just before we leave this um talk about nudge i think maybe sorry, some Gary, of I, think, you... I think mike's got his hand up oh sorry mike go ahead mike 
uh, thanks. I didn't want to interrupt. Um, okay, no problem. Uh, but yeah, uh, David, um, I, I, I love the book. Uh, I'm an I'm an academic um, at East Carolina University, um, and we're going to use the book uh, in in our uh, professional uh, practice class uh, coming up in uh, January. And um, so, you know, I'm really uh, happy uh, that you uh, wrote this book, and this is a great uh, forum here, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, so it's interesting when I read the book the first time, David. Um, I, I was a little bit shocked that there were no references in the book. And, and I was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, from an academic standpoint, from a student learning standpoint. But then as I reflected on it, um, I actually think it's quite brilliant. And I think, well, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'd like to know from you, I guess, before I kind of say why I think it's so a, a brilliant, why, why did you write the book in that particular manner? what, you know, kind of what was your vision? That would be really interesting to know. Yeah. And Mike, I guess, I guess in, in some of the chapters, I think up front, I'm, I'm hopefully fairly clear where I've drawn, um, like in the humble inquiry um, chapter, I just say, look, this is basically a, a, a 2000 word synthesis of Edgar Schein's 2009 book on humble inquiry or, or the safety science section. I say, look, this is a synthesis of, of Sidney Decker's foundations of safety science textbook. And, 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 you know, definitely, definitely, um, um, you know, chapters. There's 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 much smarter people than than me that have that have written extensively about about these issues. Um, and then there's sections of the different chapters, whether it's just cultures or borrowing from just culture or borrowing from like you know frameworks around how to have difficult um, conversations in business. But the style of writing, I, I wanted to be more accessible. Like if you look at some of that heavily referenced academic work. Um, you know, is this concept of this field guide? I wanted to be able to put it in the hands of a of a, of a safety advisor who's working, you know, in a in a manufacturing plant who maybe has done a CSP exam but 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 hasn't been to university and um, you know wants something that they can read. So I wanted it to be accessible, and also the way that it the way that I wrote it, Mike was it was quite cathartic. I, I actually just unloaded what was what was in my head, um, both a combination of What's what's the theory um, around this, and also what's been my two decades two decades of lived experience um, inside organisations as a safety professional, trying to think about how would I would I make this work? So a lot of it was really just blank page, just you know, lock, COVID lockdown, just punching away at the keyboard. So I think Mike, to answer your question, it was more what I hope the book would be, the style of writing, but um, I I. I Obviously, you know, anything that I know is has been learnt through standing on the shoulders of absolute giants in this um, in this discipline. So um, there might there's likely to be very little in that book that's a, that's a new idea of mine. Um, and Mike, like I said, I'd love to come and talk to your class as well when you when you're running the course. Oh, we would love to have you. And I think you know, I really like the style of writing because you know, I I you know, I would read something and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I know where that comes from. Where, where did that come from? And it, and then it caused me to then go back and read something else and delve into that a little bit more. And I think those are going to be great discussions to have with students and the practitioners and, you know, to talk about those things. Like, oh yeah. Where did he get that from? Yeah. Let's, let's go back and, you know, delve into that. So I think it's, I think it was a brilliant way to kind of do that. Um, so uh, thank you so much. Yeah. No, thanks, Mike. And, and I'm going to take you up on your offer. <laughs> yeah. Very kind. Thank you. I had one of those situations too, Mike, where I had a bit of an aha, because as I'm going through David's book there, it made me recall last October, and me, the author, we had Robert DeBoer come on and speak about conducting micro experiments in a complex environment where outcomes cannot be predicted. So the aha was made is that really a nudge, essentially just a micro experiment. So it's really neat how these kind of like connecting the dots occur. And you can see how they just, just you know, just thread through, through each other here and this, this everything starts to slowly come together. Just watching the clock, uh, we won't have, there's a lot of stuff that David's got, I didn't believe in change, but I want to leave time now to move on to the last block, which is facilitate learning. And this is something very interesting because when I looked at one of the chapters, it's incident investigation. So what I did, I Googled an OS, OSH website and I read the purpose of an incident investigation. And what did it say? 
It says to find out the cause, prevent similar future incidents, fulfill legal requirements, determine the cost, determine regulation compliance, and process workers' compensation claims. Not a word about learning. And it kind of bothered me. So you have a different view of what success should look like. Can you share that? Yeah, and I guess it's a good point, Gary. And, and I mean, all those things are, uh, I guess, necessary, but maybe most of the time, not that not that useful. Um, I think when I, when we think about incident investigation, there's definitely a risk assurance aspect of incident investigation, which is, you know, was there something specific that happened here that that exists in the rest of my operations, and 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 do I need to do something about it? So, you know, this particular piece of equipment failed, and I want to go and check that piece of equipment at other sites and and things like that. So, there's always a a risk assurance aspect of investigations, and and then there's this learning aspect, and and we talk a lot about learning in in organisations and wanting to be a learning organisation. And we sort of rarely put the conditions in place that uh, that actually enable learning to to occur. So in this chapter in the book, it's really talking about just culture and psychological safety and 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 the role of the the investigation to actually get a get a deeper insight and understanding of the way that our organisation functions, and and you know what are the you might say the performance shaping factors or, or what are what are the what are the the the, the logics and conditions that that. Um, and context that that contributes to the way that work is carried out, and some people would say that you know there's no point investigating because a complex system is is always changing, and the system as it existed at the time of the incident is not the same system that it is today. Um, that's all well and good, but organisations aren't going to stop investigating incidents anytime soon. So you may as well make them slightly more useful than they are at at present. And you know, when we look at organizations, when I talk to people in organizations, they do lots and lots of incident investigations, uh, which results in lots and lots of procedure updates, training courses and safety alerts in their business and, and not a whole lot of learning. So that's what we're trying to do here. Not, te not teach people in this chapter how to investigate an incident, but what are the conditions that you need to have around an incident investigation to, um, you know, to actually learn? Yeah. I think this is where that um, black line, blue line model comes in really handy. I know I use that because there's this other third somewhat hidden line called the accident line. And quite often in an accident investigation, that's where we investigate where the black line and the accident line meet. And from that, that's where we get the counterfactuals as we call them. And then things go way off, you know, and that's where the blaming comes in and everything else, where I think we got to move and look at the differences between the black and the blue lines. That's a gap because I think isn't quite correct me wrong, but that's where the real learning is between the black and the blue line. Yeah, I agree, Gary. And and also between the blue line and the hazard line, like you said, you know, like what is the the safe operating envelope around just normal performance variability of of role and task? So there's a, there's a, there's always a lot lot to learn. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Anybody got a comment out there they'd like to make in the audience? I see there's, um, tomorrow we're getting lots of good chat out there, aren't we? Okay. Uh, just checking where, okay. Tanya, you seem to be putting a lot of cool stuff on here. Can you just maybe talk to me about that? That's pretty good. I'm not even sure if I'm able to talk about it yet, Gary, because it's fairly new to me, but um, a lot of, what I believe our understanding of human behavior stems from are some experiments that were done soon after the Second World War and, you know, in the early 70s. And, you know, this blind obedience to power kind of understanding of how people will react, the ash experiment, on and on and on. There has been, um, actually, it's an Australian researcher who has dug into the archives of the Milgram experiment and found that Milgram didn't really find what we all think he did. And um, it's, I think it's amazing and frightening at the same time. And I haven't really processed it yet, but I put um, the, the YouTube he did in the chat. I also put the Australian uh, podcast that I learned this from in the chat. 
And, uh, and I think it's, it's really important for us to realize that some of maybe the foundational assumptions that we have on human, be human behavior might, might not be as solid as we think they are. Mm -hmm. Ergo, everything else that comes from that, we might have to really start questioning. That's all I'm, you know, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. Okay, uh, just just make a comment. Um, I see Jim Jim Marin is, is with us, and as I was going through David's book, his first chapter under facilitative learning is understanding work, and of course that made me think of critical steps. So there's another connection with another book to David's book here. So David, in some cases, I'm finding your book could be a bit of a hub for all these various shows that we've had on for the past couple of years. So I find that really fascinating. Um, I see there's a comment there um, from, was it Philip? Oh, Paul, what's, what's Paul, you got a comment there? Question? There's one from Philip and one from Paul. Okay, why don't you go ahead. Um, go ahead, um, Philip, sounds like you're first. Yeah, so just a, a question to, to David. Um, we're, talking, we're talking a bit about the black line and the blue line. Um, I've not read the book, and I'm just questioning whether you discuss the subject of learning from everyday work, normal everyday work in there. Yeah, it's a specific subject. Yeah, it's a good point, Philip. And 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 I guess there's a the understanding work chapter in the book is about learning from everyday work, um, and and really talks about uh, I guess I guess learning about the blue line and how to go about doing that. What different types of insights processes you can you can have in your business to do that, the descriptive processes and, and normative processes. And, and I think it's just a, a really nuanced view on what companies think that they're doing when they say we've got planned task observations or um, other types of um, activity, which is meant to be to be doing that. Right. Thank you. Okay. Paul? Paul, go ahead. Thanks, Gary. Hi, David. Yeah, yeah just my question was just in relation to uh, I suppose technical skills versus the critical people skills. We've kind of focused a bit more on the critical people skills in the last while, and there's probably no harm really. But what are your, and that I had, I had in the question there a ratio of, you know, for new people coming into the industry, or do you see a, a balance there in one way or the other? As Look, it's uh, this might be somewhat controversial because it's probably counter to um, safety uh, professional development curriculum for, for the last two decades. But if, if you've asked me for a ratio, I'd say, 10%, 90%, 10% technical skills, 90% critical people skills. Um, you know, I think I, I don't focus at them too much in this book because most people have done an auditing course, an incident investigation course, uh, a hazard management course. They might understand um, some of the technical aspects. Uh, and also there's typically in any of those technical aspects as a safety professional, there's likely to be someone in your organization who has more deep technical knowledge on that issue than, than you do anyway. So your ability to ask good questions is always going to trump any any sort of uh, technical capability that you're bringing in relation to work or or hazards. So I think it's good to an extent, Paul, to have enough technical understanding that you can you can ask good questions and 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 draw people in. So you know I still think industry context is really important. So you know understanding the language and and the business processes in in the industry that you're trying to support. Um, but I also think it's potentially um, less helpful if the safety person already thinks they know the answer. Um, I don't know if that helps, Paul, but yeah, always, I always hesitate to give a you know a, a really specific answer. But if you ask the question, I'm happy to have a crack at it. Yeah, no, good stuff. Thanks. I, I'm getting closer to the 10:90 myself. Maybe not quite there yet, but <laughs> we're at the top of the hour, so I just want to leave one more question and maybe call on your experience, David, traveling around the world. Do you find all the stuff that's in your book totally applicable for different cultures, whether it's South, East, Northwest? Yeah, so because we didn't talk specifically about regulation or anything like that, we, um, we, we've had more than, I mean, in the training program, which this book is, is, is based on, um, we've had more than 500 safety professionals in the last two years, you know, mines in in all all part all corners of africa 
um, Mauritania, Angola, Nigeria, South Africa. We've had people in Canada and, and the Americas and Mexico and, and, and South America and, and Asia um, as well. There is some, there's a comment in here. There is some different cultural context from between Western and Eastern that Afids has, has mentioned there. Um, it means things like humble inquiry and the role of hierarchy and power in, in business is, is, is a bit different. So if you think about some of the approaches that we've been talking about today, about consensus building and learning teams, there's, there's a slightly different hierarchical context that you need to understand um, in you know, particularly in Eastern Eastern cultures around that. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have that mindset, but it means how you actually go about doing that um, needs to be culturally sensitive. Um, but we do find that, you know, that, that most of the material in the book resonates with people, you know, all over the world. And in fact, one of the things that I've been most surprised about how is how consistent the plight of a safety professional is in, in all parts of, in all parts of the world. Um, so that's been my experience. That's great, thank you. Well, let me close today's sessions because we're top of the hour. What's your three takeaways that you would like to leave the viewers? Look, I think um, um, we we sort of say in in the role, and it's not so much in the book, but a, a safety professional sort of should help the organ help an organization answer sort of three fundamental um, necessities. You know, we need to help our organization understand the answer to the question of Are we safe enough? You know. Are, are we safe enough today? Um, the second question is, what else can we do to reduce risk further in our in our business? Um, and then the third point or question would be, how can we integrate what we're doing in the delivery of our safety objectives with the delivery of our other business and operational objectives to make sort of our, our safety management activities additive um, to the bottom line performance of the business? Um, so I think there's a, there's some some really fundamental things that, is, that there that a safety professional needs to support there. Their, their business with are we safe enough what else can we do to re reduce this further and how do we um enhance our our organizational operational performance through the way that we're we're managing safety oh great well there's a lot more in the book that we couldn't cover today and i don't know where the hour went but we, we passed it um so we left a lot of meat on cards if i can say that besides getting the book i also recommend checking out david's safety futures website and I think tomorrow we'll, we'll include a link in that when you publish today's recording on LinkedIn. Okay. Absolutely. So, so over to you. Yeah, no, thank you everybody for joining us and Gary again for hosting and putting this together and for everybody for coming, because if we didn't have you join us, we wouldn't have these discussions. So this is great. Thank you. And thank you, Dave, for taking time out of your busy day to join us and share your book and share your knowledge and, you know, just kind of lift our thinking up a little bit to a different place. Thank you very much for doing no that. No problems tomorrow. Just for reference, the, the 3 a.m. till 4 a.m. Saturday morning time slot isn't usually that congested in my okay. schedule. So. so we can do this again. Yeah, any, any week. That's what I'm hearing. Any week. Absolutely. Any week would be fine. <laughs> Wonderful. I guarantee I'm available. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy Thanks, holidays. Happy thank holidays. You. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, all. So, Richard, you had a question, didn't you? Oh, did Richard go? Yeah, looks like it. Oh, okay. All right. He had a question. Oh, it's okay. Let's see. All right. Wow, that was good. Fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, worked out well. That's good. You're That's always good. right, Gary. The hour, the hour does go fast. It it does, yeah. and that, you know, and you know, as you know, I, I I prepare these prompt questions, and as you say, it, it they're linear questions, but they they appear non-linear. You know, we we take it as the as the occasion emerges. This is the right time to ask the question. So. Looks like looks like there's some flow. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the prep was really helpful to keep on to keep us on track. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, Gary, it sounds like you're coming down with something. Oh, I'm coming over it. <laughs> so oh, are you? I was okay. a bit worried two days ago. I could hardly speak. Oh, <laughs> so well, we appreciate it. I think I've been, I think I've tasted every type of lotions that they sell in the drugstore to find one that works. So, thank God I came. To, I can relax now. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this has been great. Okay. Yeah. So um, do you have the link to um, David's um, Safety Futures? Or maybe you can provide that? Yeah, just safety, been... safetyfutures.com. Yeah, it's very straightforward. If not, I can, I can give it to you. I think you should be able to find it. Oh, okay. So not the book. No, it's, it's a link to, and there's a ton of online resources there, which is really good, which, which basically supports the program that he has, the online, the online program. Okay. So, no, I don't have that. Hold on. What is it again? Um, do you have can that? we put in? it in the chat? Yeah. It, yeah, put it in the chat and then safety what? Uh, safetyfutures.com, isn't it? Yeah, it's just safetyfutures.com. It's just a course programs, but or just LinkedIn safety future. There's a safety features page on LinkedIn as well. And it's all blue. blue. Uh, yeah, it's all blue. It is all blue. Okay, there I put that there. So that we go. can so at least I have it. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. That's cool. Great. Yeah. So that I can put that in in the follow-up email, right? Yeah, follow-up email, and even uh, if you want to post that as part of the comments in in the YouTube video, that'd be good as well. Because we have a lot of um, people that unfortunately can't attend, but they'll watch the YouTube later, so it'd be nice Great. to have that. Well. Yeah. Cool, yeah. and then and then I can share that link as well. Yeah, and the LinkedIn yeah. too, right? Yeah, yeah, Both. yeah, everything. Yeah, and we just we just broadcast it everywhere. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks again, awesome. David. Thank no problem. You. Have a this great weekend. Great. Have a great, great Christmas. Great holidays, and well yeah. done for what you do, well done for what you're doing in the community. So, um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Great, guys. Thanks. Great. Thanks tomorrow. Thank you. Bye. 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 Okay.